Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. Hello and welcome to this episode of Well We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between PhD student Vanita Leah Falco and Professor Louise Tillen, Director of the King's India Institute. Vanita is currently doing a PhD exploring the use of technology in implementing welfare entitlements in India. Her research captures just how digitalization is affecting the agency of both local state actors and local citizens in how they demand their rights and resolve problems. She talks about her time as a policy worker in India before she started her PhD, and she also shares examples of her research fieldwork, including how her experiences shifted the focus of her thesis. Let's get on to what she has to say. So welcome to this episode of The World We Got This podcast. It's a special In Conversation episode. My name is Louise Tillin. I'm a professor of politics and the director of the India Institute at King's College London. And it's my pleasure today to um, be talking to one of my PhD students, Vanita Lea Falco. Vanita, welcome to the podcast. I wonder if you might just start by briefly introducing yourself and perhaps start with the title of your PhD project, although I'd like to take you back before there was a title in a moment. Yeah. Thank you, Louise. So I'm Vanita and I have been at the King's India Institute since more or less 2018. And during this time, I think I have explored more generally the welfare state and in the context of a rights-based approach to welfare provisioning, which then kind of narrowed down. And I, after some years of consideration and deliberation then narrowed down on digitalization in particular and fundamentally my project looks at how the digitalization of the Indian welfare state shapes active citizenship and so that's yeah fundamentally what I'm doing during this PhD but before I yeah came to the PhD I was a policy practitioner for several years, um, I would say nearly seven to eight years. My introduction to policy was during my undergrad. I consider myself very fortunate to have entered, I, I studied political science and during my summer vacations, I spent almost all three of my summers visiting rural parts of India particularly in the poorest belt, where they had recently launched something called the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. Because this was using a rights-based approach, the idea was to get students like me. And this was led by academics, activists, um, people who had been involved in bringing, in a a big way, pushing for this rights-based approach to be adopted. And so it was led by various individuals. And I, my first experience, I would say, of rural poverty was in Chhattisgarh. This would have been in 2005 or six, where we sent, where I spent a summer, well, first learning about the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act and thereafter participating in awareness building 
initiatives. So we would do street theater, we would do, be doing surveys, trying to inform people about what their rights are under the Act, how they can claim work, because this was a rural work guarantee. Let me just stop you there for a minute, Vanita, because I imagine that that listeners to the podcast won't all be familiar with the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme. And you're Mm -hmm. talking about the very first year when it was in action in in central India, in the state of Chhattisgarh, and in one of the epicenters, really, of rural poverty. Can you just tell listeners a little bit about what the Narega or Munrega, as it then became known, the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme? Can you just tell us a bit about what it was intended to do? What what did it promise and, and what did it mean on the ground? So fundamentally, it was meant to be an employment guarantee or a safety net in times of unemployment. Basically, you had a lot of migrant labor coming to cities and things like that, as a result of which there were repercussions at the local level. There were lean periods when agricultural labor, so people who didn't have their own fields but were working on other people's fields and had no other form of income at the village level, they would not then have employment opportunities. And so fundamentally what the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act or the Narega later rechristened the Manrega or Mahatma Gandhi Narega did or promised or actually not just promised but entitled rural residents to was a certain number of days of employment, guaranteed employment doing manual labor at minimum wage. I mean, this was seen at the time by its proponents as a potentially quite revolutionary piece of legislation in that it enshrined in law as you say, an entitlement for every rural household to be able to demand up to 100 days of paid employment. And were that employment not to exist, the Act also entitled people to an unemployment allowance under the Act, which was something that had never existed before. Of course, Mm -hmm. you know, India has always had an endemic problem with underemployment and unemployment. So simply in terms of serving as a public Public Works Act, it was very important. But for its advocates, it was also at the heart of a new way of thinking about the delivery of welfare in India, right? It was about enshrining in law a set of rights of citizenship that moved away from the idea that in the past, welfare had been a kind of bestowed as an act of patronage by the state, often in very discretionary ways. People weren't very clear what their rights were, you know, that they may sometimes be lucky enough to receive some benefit or some good from the state, but without the guarantee that that was either routinized or or understood as a right. And Narega and of, and of course the Right to Information Act, which went alongside Narega, yeah. was really seen as being almost some people would describe it as revolutionary. Can you tell us just a little bit about that revolutionary potential of Narega? And I know this takes you way back from when you began your PhD, but I think it's important in terms of how it sparked your motivation for what you've gone on to do Mm -hmm. in the PhD. Yeah, well, for one, I think as somebody who had always lived in urban India, had a relatively privileged upbringing, who'd read about poverty as part of one's curriculum or in you know, public articles and things like that, to see it firsthand was just, it was life altering. It really was. Uh, you return to your own everyday reality and you don't see it the same way. But that's kind of the personal journey. But even what we saw at that point, and 
and maybe I, I'll talk a little bit later about what I've, I saw then versus what I saw in my field work during my PhD. Looking at another entitlement, not the Nariga, uh, was quite different. And so we were essentially at the village level. People were coming to meetings. People were outspoken. They knew very little about the right, but they were willing to join the meeting to say what was working or not working for them. You saw a certain kind of mobilization and, and a participation that was quite consultative. Uh, like you said, because the, RT, the right to information had also been introduced and passed after large-scale movements at the grassroots level, so you already had a certain momentum that had built up. Um, and so when we went in as young students and adults, seeing that, participating in that, seeing the potential actually of that moment was quite something. It was by moving to experience mm. it at that point of time. You also saw that because this was something that went hand in hand with the activism, but also a certain political commitment, one may say, or an openness to the recognition of such rights. Of course, you saw challenges at the local level, but at that point, there seemed spaces that were opening up to, for instance, have public hearings where people would come and in a situation where you've had caste or power inequality in the way that you see in rural, especially in, in parts of rural India, to be able to stand up and question government official or question any kind of person in, in, a, in a position of authority was just something you'd not really seen happen in this organized way. And so, yeah, it was just inspiring and gave one kind of hope in what could happen through the public hearings and the, the social audits that now you've actually seen a lot of states try to institutionalize them and use mm. them in an attempt to in increase public accountability and transparency. And then in your own personal trajectory, you, you also then went on to work on the right to food, which was later piece of, of legislation, but also with a large, long history of social mobilisation around it. How, yeah. How, yeah, how did that come about? And, and was that similar? Yeah, so I think just having been a part of what was the right to work, but then with the subsequent kind of passage of other entitlements, they expanded the right to work to include the right to food movement. And so I, it was almost an automatic kind of connection with the campaign that grew and expanded and looked at pensions and employment and food security and things like that. And so it wasn't such a shift in terms of how I was involved or what I was involved in, but it continued in this way where it was voluntary involvement for some years. And then after some time having uh, worked with a group that looks at democracy and electoral kind of preferences and understanding voting behavior and things like that, I then decided it was time to kind of get into public policy in a more serious way. And I, I moved to working with the Rural Development Department in the state of Bihar where I spent a year or so before going on to study public policy at a master's level. So that's how I actually really entered in the formal space of employment, working on questions of well, rural, rural development more broadly, but then narrowing down and looking more specifically at food security, particularly things like the PDS, the public distribution system, and maternity entitlements. 
which were part of the programs or the rights that were recognized by the National Food Security Act. And Mm -hmm. so post my master's in public policy, I then uh, was working at the office of the Supreme Court commissioners, who these commissioners had been appointed by the Supreme Court. So fundamentally, what this rights-based approach does is it recognizes a formal right to to certain welfare entitlements. And so it makes the state responsible for provisioning them. And in a scenario where the state doesn't fulfill its job, you can then challenge the state in a court of law or in the highest court of law, actually. And which is why the Supreme Court put in place these commissioners to monitor the situation of food security in the country. And I was involved in the work that the office was doing, the commissioners were doing in the monitoring of the situation. Mm. And then so you've again, given us a really was, nice sense there, I think, of a really important kind of series of, of strands that came together in the noughties and 2010s, early 2010s at least, um, in which civil society mobilisation and approaches to the Supreme Court really, in a sense, kind of breathe life into some of the fundamental rights of the Indian constitution, especially using Article 21, the right to life, and as a result of those decisions in which the court, as you say, almost then instructed the government to carry out its own policies more effectively and appointed commissioners to ensure that it was doing that. From that flowed a series of pieces of legislation that that were then enacted in the so-called UPA era, the United Progressive Alliance government era. And, And clearly you've been involved, you've seen this process from the ground up, working within a state government, within the bureaucracy, as well as working with appointees of the Supreme Court. Having done all of that, I wonder now whether you could tell us a bit about where the motivation for your PhD project came from, because you decided to do the PhD at a particular juncture, I think, in, in the history of the rights-based movement. So tell us a bit about what you want, what you wanted to find out um, through doing the PhD when you began. The question of doing a PhD was one that kind of came up quite quickly after a master's for me. But I, I think personally, I kind of decided I wouldn't do it for the sake of the degree. Uh, it would be something that I would do, given that it would it would be in something I felt strongly about, that I had been involved in and, and in a committed way and work uh, that I was involved in in a committed way. I felt I should come to it only when I have a pressing question and not try and find a question to answer. And so after several years of working in with different organizations and institutions, uh, policy related institutions. I, I felt like there was something where we were not accounting for the vision of the rights-based approach. While it, were, it had been a massive development at one point of time, the way we had moved forward, at least at the national level and in these policy spaces that were responsible for reform and were actually advocating and were quite influential in the, the policy space, I felt we had lost the vision a little bit. That's not where we were coming from. And so this disconnect between what I had seen or the the potential that I had imagined versus what I was seeing at the national level, at least with the bigger organizations and institutions and how they were approaching welfare policy, I felt there was a dissonance. I felt that the idea of the right and what it meant when we designed policy and it hit the ground wasn't completely understood. There was an imagination of what 
it would look like. And while it was being studied by several scholars, to look at it particularly from the angle of the recognition of citizenship as an activation of citizenship through these entitlements and, and enabling citizens to demand of the state and not just wait for benefits to be given when the state decided to do so. I felt like this the citizenship angle was missing when in the imagination of welfare provisioning. And so when I came to it to the PhD, I intended to try and see what the recognition of the right or the implementation of the rights-based approach at the national level meant in the everyday life of people. What recognizing a right actually means for the citizen in the everyday. That was what brought me and what motivated me to kind of come to the PhD. And yeah, I started it with that intent. Um, and you ended up heading out to rural Jharkhand, which is state in eastern India, bordering Chhattisgarh, so not too far from where you started out, mm -hmm. um, and, and one of India's newer states. Tell us a bit about the context in Jharkhand and your kind of initial experience of fieldwork. Obviously, Jharkhand, those of you who know Jharkhand and, and the Indian political developmental history well, will probably have some sense of where Jharkhand sits in that. It's quite a particular context for the enactment of, of rights, a, a state with one of the strongest histories of social mobilisation, protest movements, especially um, movements demanding rights for scheduled tribe communities, Adivasi communities in Jharkhand, and quite a mobilised civil society, possibly somewhat unlike other states in India, but also a state in which levels of rural poverty and levels of inequality remained quite stubbornly high. So tell us a bit about your experience of starting fieldwork in, mm -hmm. in the Jharkhand context and how you started to kind of, well, how you started to see the, the reality of what rights meant there. Yeah, actually, it was a few months after I started the PhD. And, and I say this because Jharkhand was chosen by virtue of it being one of the poorest. And I will respond to the question you ask, but it was about maybe six months into beginning the PhD that there was this tragic case in Delhi, in the capital city, in which three young children, all under eight years of age, had starved to death. These were children of daily wage earners, migrant daily wage earners. And I found myself thinking, we're in the capital city where it would be relatively easy to access services or have your cards made, but then documentation, things like that. What, what is going on where if the, the right to food is recognized, even in the capital city, you have young children starving to death. And, and so the choice of Jharkhand, while it is quite extreme in some ways, I, I, it is the second poorest state, second to Bihar. I, I, I do want to stress that it, it is not an exception in some ways. What I saw and I think would be relevant in other contexts too is just given time, given you know the methodology and things like that, I, I picked certain parts of rural Jharkhand. But coming back to the question that you asked, I initially spent some time in the capital city of Jharkhand in Ranchi when I initially went in. And this was partly because I had been away in London for several months. As hard as one tries, you cannot keep up with everything that's going on at the local level. So to get a sense of more recent developments, to speak to activists, even researchers who've spent time over there, and to try and narrow down on districts that I would uh, 
I would and one could because it is remote and and connectivity is poor and road connectivity, uh, transportation, things like that. And so I think in my initial months along, we're trying to narrow down on my, on a question or the themes that I would be looking at were also about figuring out how I'd get around, who I would be getting in touch with, who would be willing to speak to me. Without getting too much into it, there is also suspicion when somebody new comes in and wants to have political conversations. It is a state that had a history of a Naxalite movement. Accessing some spaces is not easy. People are sometimes not always willing to have conversations if you're absolutely new. And so the need to go through local organizations or somebody familiar into villages was necessary. And so my initial months were actually, I think, overcoming some of these challenges. I, I shouldn't say overcoming because some of them continue to the very end. Uh, the dependency mm. on others for access is one that I think I struggled with. Uh, it, it, isn't, it wasn't like after a few months of being there, mm. I could then just go in on my own or access, you know, people, but also the villages because of connectivity issues that would have been the initial kind of time that I spent there. And in terms of the question that you went out with, quite quickly, I think, when you arrived, after you arrived in the field and had got your head around these different logistical questions, the nature mm-hmm. of the question you were asking, I think, also started to change um, mm-hmm. by virtue of what you were finding. And I think this is where the question yeah. of technology comes in and, and yeah. what, you know, India has in the last few years seen a very, very rapid digitization, yeah. both of biometric identification systems, but also the other systems by which citizens access the state. And I wonder if you might tell us a bit about how you realised that that was starting to shape the realisation of some of the rights-based approaches that you were interested in? Honestly, initially when I went in, I felt like maybe choosing the public distribution system. I chose to look at two programmes, fundamentally the public distribution system and a maternity entitlement called the Pradhan Mantri Matru Vandana Yojana, the PMMVY. And so the PDS and the PMMVY were the programs I initially went in expecting to focus on. And actually, I ultimately did end up focusing on them. But in between, I think, in my conversations, and it was a particular period when there was a lot of activity around the Forest Rights Act, which entitles people who've been residing for a certain number of years to forest produce, non-timber forest produce. And so in order to have that right, they needed a certain license or a patta or a document that said they were uh, residents and entitled to. And so there was a lot of activity around that. And I wondered whether I should actually be looking at the rights-based approach through another program, which was more relevant in a Jharkhand context. And I ultimately decided to stick with the two programs that I initially thought I'd look at the PDS and the PMMBY because to the question of when digitalization became, you know, the the, the question I thought I must pursue, quite frankly, and this has been a, a huge learning for me for somebody who thought they were very open to learning when they went to the field. I think one of my first conversations with an activist who spent many, many years in the state working on uh, questions of vulnerability suggested I look at the Aadhaar. And because it was at that time that a lot of exclusion, Aadhaar being the the biometric identification that people were 
required to have to access a lot of the welfare programs and it was being used in a big way post, I would say about 2015, it's it's been pushed for in a big way. And they had suggested that I look at this more closely because a lot was going on. At that point, I had come in just having written my proposal, thinking I've thought about exactly what I want to do. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know there's a lot going on over there, but this is not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in this other question. And I moved on. And, you know, at the end of this PhD, I feel I could have saved myself a lot of months of pondering if I had just listened a little bit more at the start. Um, but it's a lesson and, and and I think a big one for me as I near the end of this PhD. But nonetheless, so when I think back to when I felt like digitalization was the big question I should be looking at, honestly, it didn't strike me till after I left, till after I completed my fieldwork. I think during it, uh, because I was closely documenting the interactions between state and citizen related to these two programs, I was obviously seeing the impact of how digitalization was shaping these interactions or what's coming up as a result of this digitalization. It was not the focus of my viewer. And I think there isn't any one moment which struck me, what am I doing? Why am I not focusing on this? But when I came away having at that point kind of gathered a major part of my fieldwork and reflecting a little bit on the nearly one year that I had spent doing so, I recall saying to many people, it's omnipresent. The digital is omnipresent. At various points, I would say this. And I think it is in this mundane omnipresence that I started to realize, why am I not, you know, looking at this? Maybe you could give us a bit of a sense from your field work, I'm, I'm conscious that we're probably coming towards the end of the conversation, and I and I really like some of the rich insights from your field experience just to come come through. In terms of, I mean, one one of the fascinating threads I think in your research is just what digitization is doing to the agency of both local state actors and local citizens in mm -hmm. how they seek to either demand their rights or to resolve problems and and seek redress. So could you just give us a little flavor of of those questions um, mm -hmm. perhaps either either with reference to the the public distribution system or maternity benefits. If you look at the PDS the public distribution system this was a program that had been riddled with corruption had been controlled to a large extent by powerful dealers the ones running the program or the ones responsible for distributing uh, rations through fair price shops. And so the idea of digitizing was meant to address to a large scale corruption. And the claim was that it would allow citizens to go to a shop and require them to verify their fingerprint. And as a result of that, you then address the question of leakage, which was occurring as a result of people not knowing that grains were being lifted in their name, or then ghost beneficiaries, which would be people whose identity was being used, you know, without their knowledge or who had passed away some years ago, things like that. So it's essentially, it was to address leakage at the point of sale, which was at the FPS. And what I saw and which is what has been documented is that you continue to see leakage occurring even at the point of distribution, which is at the fair price shop. And this is because in some ways, the heavy digitalization causes the local state to focus exclusively on keeping up 
with the processes of digitalization. So be it maintaining machines, be it looking into connectivity issues, or it could be maintaining data and databases which require constant monitoring. What I saw was that the local state's efforts and energies were completely redirected towards just keeping this digital system going. And as a result, you saw other reforms prior to digitalization, as well as after being completely ignored, because the idea was that digitalization will fix it all. But I witnessed personally and people across the board spoke of at least one to two kilos of grain being deducted. They knew it, they were paying for it, they knew it, and they were fine with it. And whether that was due to the inequality, the power dynamics, the inability to question a dealer, there are various reasons why people would go along with it. There was also the narrative that Dealers have to pay bribes, they have to get grains delivered. Dealers said they were not being paid through the digital system for the delivery costs. And so hence they had to transfer these costs down to citizens. And so one of the fundamental things was that this digitalization was a solution in search of a problem because we knew what was happening. We knew what the problems were. We came in with this point of sale device, which requires you to validate your fingerprint at the shop. And the belief was that this would fix it all, but it doesn't. And we see that it doesn't. And yet we continue pushing for it and insisting on the use of it. But that's just the aspect of existing issues not being addressed. What you also see is as a result of these efforts being diverted towards digitalization, the local state is not just overburdened and struggling to keep up and cope, but you also see them dealing with with a largely opaque and rigid digital system. And when you have that, the ability to respond locally is highly diminished. And so you have not just an overburdened local state whose efforts are diverted, you now have an overburdened and less responsive and arguably less responsive local state where even in situations where one may want to, they cannot. So you have some really interesting anecdotes of local officials venting their their frustration with their inability to resolve problems and indeed their inability to resolve or to to eradicate corruption even because they don't yeah. have the power to to make the technical fixes at the local level that they need in order to help the system to function smoothly yeah even with with just you can't even with the pds there are people who are supposed to get cards. They qualify as per the, you know, the criteria under which they're supposed to get cards. And so now they would submit an application asking for a ration card and they would go to the block office and submit it or to the district supply office and submit their application. And what you have happening is that this digital system is no longer, it's been locked. They are not taking any more applications. Now, at the local level, at the block level, there's nothing one can do about it. But because you're the first point of contact, or usually even the dealer the, who, who runs the, the fair price shop is the first point of contact, but the, the next kind of bureaucratic level, the block level, is where people would go. And what that does is people are then demanding of or questioning officials who cannot do anything, who cannot respond with any information or updates or actually effectively, you know, do anything because the system is locked and it's locked from the top. And what I noticed in in instances like this was 
what seemed like a lack of legitimacy, or, or sorry, the a loss of public standing when ordinarily you would be able to respond or give information when you can't, how you are viewed or your, you know, how effective you were seen to be changes in, in, in the public's view. And so I, for instance, was at the office of somebody called the marketing officer who needs to sign off on applications uh, in order for them to then be digitized and moved on up the digital kind of trajectory. And people were being told that we are not adding children under five. We are only going to add them if they are five years and above. So you'd have a mother. I met a mother who was there waiting with four children on her application, who two of who were above the age of five and two of who were below. And they were all entitled to receive grain under the public distribution system, except she was told, we will only allow you, your two children to be added, and we're cutting off the other two names. And there was just chaos. And we then, because the block development officer's residence was nearby, people decided they're going to go demand from the block development officer. So I followed this procession of people who then went and they were kind of creating a ruckus outside the shop. In the meantime, the marketing officer goes in to speak to the, the BDO and returns back. And they're told by the BDO, oh, don't worry, we're going to, we're going to accept all applications of everybody. And so we, uh, I follow the people back to the marketing officer's little cabin where he starts to accept the forms and he's visibly upset and angry because he's been in front of this group of people been told, no, you accept all, all the applications. But he, while accepting them, he says to the mother I was referring to, well, I'm going to take it, but nothing's going to come of it. And he accepts it. But I found myself wondering why he said that. And in conversations with officials, I had learned previously too, when I was reminded of at this point that they did it to kind of contain the crowd at that point to kind of move on with it. But actually, there was nothing they could do. They were trying to take in a few of the applications kind of ration at the local level, the quota of cards that were now available with mm. these officials. And so this is just one instance of, you know, the local officials lose public standing, but they, mm. they respond in these arbitrary ways to kind of establish their authority. But what they're really doing is managing something that needs systemic fixes. Taking locally. you back to where you started, you have a new digital architecture, which is constraining the ability of local officials to make their own judgment calls about who is entitled to what and how. And they're the unravelling of the promise of rights as entitlement and as understood mm -hmm. by citizens themselves when they can mm -hmm. see the bind that local officials are in too. Um, and, you know, I think you describe in your writing the, almost a sense of powerlessness um, that, that emerges as a result. And I think probably on that note, we will have to bring this conversation to an end. But it's been really nice to journey with you on your long journey um, <laughs> through through rights almost to the end of your PhD, which should be where well, you're coming right to the end of, of writing now in the coming months. So, yeah, um, yeah wishing you all the best with that. And, and thanks for talking Thank with you. me today. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much, Louise. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the World We Got This In Conversation podcast with Vanita Leo Falco and Professor Louise Tillen. You can find out more about Vanita's research on the King's India Institute's website. 
This episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs. It was produced by Julia Stempowska and edited by Rachel Wall. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.